Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble. With exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. This is the English Heritage Podcast. Hello and welcome to your weekly podcast into England's past. I'm Charles Rowe. As always, you can listen to new episodes every Thursday. And if you haven't subscribed yet, just click on the button to keep up to date. Plus, you can also leave us a rating or a review. Now, as the nights grow long and the nation's eyes turn towards the shadows as Halloween approaches, we're discussing the dark and sinister history of Farley Hungerford Castle near Bath, which is in southwest England. Home to the Hungerford family for over 300 years, it's a place where you can see Britain's best collection of human-shaped lead coffins, explore a creepy crypt, and also learn about murder, disaster and scandal. One part even linked to witchcraft. Joining us to explain more is historian and author of the English Heritage Red Guide to Farley Hungerford Castle, Charles Kitely. Hello, Charles. Hello. So let's start by getting to know Farley Hungerford Castle. Where is it and what does it look like today? Well, it's just on the Somerset side of the Wiltshire-Somerset border, about nine miles from Bath and three and a half from Trowbridge. It's quite ruinous, but it's a very impressive ruin. You can see two of the four big corner towers and the outer gatehouse and part of the outer wall and, of course, the very, very complete chapel. You can trace the outline of all the foundations of the whole castle if you go there. How does it look like from the air? Um, is it sort of like a, a square shape with these four towers as you've described? Yes, it's what's called a quadrangular castle. So the inner part is a quadrangle. It had four big round corner towers, two of which are still standing pretty well to their full height. And then there's an outer courtyard as well, which contains the chapel, which is the much the best preserved part of the castle and perhaps the most interesting. Hmm. And who built the castle originally? Well, unlike a lot of castles that doesn't have Norman origins, it's quite a, a latecomer among castles. It was built around about 1380 by a man called Sir Thomas Hungerford, who was a, a local man who'd done very well for himself as steward of the south part of the lands of John of Gaunt, who was Edward III's younger son and the most powerful man in England. So Sir Thomas had made a lot of money by being his steward, and he'd served him in other ways, particularly by being Speaker of the House of Commons in 1377. That particular parliament was so full of Gaunt's sort of yes-men that it was known as the Pact Parliament. I mean, Sir Thomas was a bit of a yes-man. He was a, a Lancastrian servant, a servant of the House of Lancaster, and did very well. Yes, and it's probably worth saying as well, and I don't know if you know this, that um, John of Gaunt is a secondary school in the nearby town of Trowbridge, as you described. So that's a, a local connection to the area as well. Oh, I'm glad to hear it. I'm rather fond of John of Gaunt. <laughs> yeah, well, he owned yes. a lot of land round there, you see. 
he owned land all over England, but Sir Thomas was the steward of his South Country lands. Why did Sir Thomas Hungerford decide to build a fortress for himself in rural Somerset in that period? Well, to show off, briefly. <laughs> he, he wasn't, Sir Thomas wasn't a soldier, he was an administrator. And what he wanted to do was to emphasise that he was the most powerful local chap around there. And he, he chose a place for his castle which didn't have any other powerful local squires that might give him trouble. He was really showing off and he was, I think, saying, I'm founding a dynasty here, the Hungerford dynasty, and this castle is the symbol of it and the symbol of my status. Did Sir Thomas succeed then in setting up his dynasty? Yes, he did, because the castle of Farley Hungerford was in the hands of his descendants, the Hungerford family, for 300 years throughout its history, which is quite unusual for just one family. But, uh, of course, they kept losing it because they kept getting into trouble and they kept having it confiscated and getting it back again. But the only family that lived there, really, through the three centuries of its existence, were the Hungerfords. So, yes, he did succeed in founding a dynasty. Did Sir Thomas lead a long life? Uh, yes, he lived a, a longish life and died in his bed in 1397. You can see his monument in the, it's a very good one, in the castle chapel and he's dressed as a knight which is really saying this is my status because he really wasn't a warrior he was an administrator but uh, his son definitely was a warrior. That brings us on to our next section really. So who was Thomas Hungerford's immediate descendant and what did he bring to the family story? Well Walter was his, his, his successor and Walter who lived between 1378 and 1449, quite a long time, was much the most distinguished of all the Hungerfords. He became the first Lord Hungerford. Like his father, he, he started off as a servant of the House of Lancaster. John of Gaunt's son became King Henry IV and knighted Walter on the eve of his coronation. And he went on serving the Lancastrian royal house. He fought with Henry V throughout all Henry's wars, and he was at Henry's side at Agincourt, and in fact, he was the one who made a speech saying he wished they had 10,000 more archers and was told by the king, oh, shut up, we don't need more archers, we're reliant on God. And Shakespeare puts that speech into the mouth of the Earl of Westmoreland, but it was actually Walter Lord Hungerford who said it. He did very well for himself as a warrior and as a land dealer, and by marrying his children to advantageous people, he actually added a hundred manors or more to the family estates, and he became a very rich man, not just because of that, but because of ransoms. Now, ransoms were a really important part of a 15th century warrior's life. And what he did was to capture lots of Frenchmen at different times and then ransom them so their families had to pay large sums of money to get young Pierre or young Louis back again. And it was probably ransoms that enabled him to double the size of the castle and build the whole outer courtyard. He did very well indeed, as people did while the English were winning. When they weren't winning, it wasn't so good. Yes. Would you say that um, he was uh, sort of a chip off the old block or did he do better than his father or the same? Oh, a lot better, a lot better. I mean, he was a famous man. 
part of the government because he was one of the guardians of the infant Henry VI. And he did extremely well and was very well respected indeed. And when he died, he left a, a very, very long will, which shows that the castle was full of very posh beds and posh armour and things like that. And the important thing, or the interesting thing to me, is that his own cup, Walter's own cup, uh, which he drank out of daily, a great gold and silver cup, had been left to him by John of Gaunt. So, you know, this is Lancastrian servants again, and, and the hunger for stuck to being Lancastrians, even though it got them into a lot of trouble. Yes, and it's probably worth us explaining for people who aren't aware, because as we do have an international audience, can you explain in this time period the significance of the Lancastrians and the Yorkists? Well, there were two main rival branches for the English throne, the House of Lancaster, who were descended from John of Gaunt, and later on the Yorkists, who were descended from the second son, but by a rather roundabout route. So the House of Lancaster owned vast quantities of land all over England, and they brought us Henry IV, Henry V, Henry VI, and then got dislodged by the Yorkists during the Wars of the Roses, which we'll come to later on. But Walter was a warrior at a time when the English were doing very well. Nobody could stop Henry V. He just took one place after another, one, one battle after another. And there was Walter beside him, building up ransoms, capturing Frenchmen and carrying them back and uh, getting a lot of money for them. So he benefited greatly from Henry V's sort of militaristic and political prowess, I suppose. Yes, he did. He was the king's best mate, or one of them anyway. <laughs> What are the dates then of Walter's life? Well, he was born in 1378 and he died in 1449. So he's really flourishing. He was a famous jouster as well. He was flourishing in the first half of the 15th century. And that was really the great heyday of the Hungerfords. But um, we've built Walter up to be quite an impressive figure. But um, I believe that things start to go awry for the Hungerford family, don't they? And when does that start? Well, yes, they did. It starts when things start to go wrong for the English in France, because ransoms cut both ways. It was OK if you were collecting them, but if you were paying them, that was another matter. And uh, Walter's son, who was called Robert, the second Lord Hungerford, his whole life was blighted by trying to raise vast sums of money, £10,000 in their terms, which is a great deal more today, to pay for his son's ransom, because his son had got captured by the French at Castillon in 1453, and he was trying to get him back again, and his whole life was blighted by having to find this money to pay his son's ransom. So did um, Walter's son get ransomed home? Well, it was Walter's grandson, actually. Walter's grandson, who was Robert the th Third Lord Hungerford, who did get ransomed home just in time for the Wars of the Roses, beginning in the 1450s. And this uh, Third Lord Hungerford, Robert, was an absolute thug, a very unpleasant creature indeed. But he did stick to the Lancastrian side throughout the Wars of the Roses, even when they were obviously losing. And as a result, he lost his head and the Hungerfords lost the title, and they lost their castle. So by sticking to the Lancastrians, they really came unstuck. Ah, so that's quite interesting, isn't it, really, that um, they were too loyal, I suppose. We've discussed in previous podcasts that um, sometimes it's better to be a weather vane, 
and to sort of blow with the wind and just see how events unfold. Well, it particularly was during the Wars of the Roses. And the next one on the Hungerford list did just that. He did lay low. And under the Yorkist kings, Edward IV and Richard III, he kept quiet. But eventually, the old Lancastrian loyalty came out again, and Walter, another Walter, rebelled against Richard III, and Richard III put him in prison. But he managed to escape, and this was quite an adventure, and get across country and join Henry Tudor, Henry VII, who had invaded England to knock Richard III out. And uh, this Walter Hungerford managed to join him and fight beside him at Bosworth in 1485. As a result, they got the castle back. But yes, that was a bit of an adventure, how it managed to escape from prison and dash across country and join Henry Tudor, taking a big risk, but the risk paid off. After Sir Thomas, our first Hungerford, we sort of have this climb with Walter and then things sort of start to get a little bit... um, harder to predict with the changing political climate and things sort of start to go down a bit and then they climb up again. Climb up again, but then during the Tudor period, they really got themselves into trouble. And it was in during the Tudor period that the horrors of Hungerford really came to the surface, one scandal after another. Yes. Am I right in saying that, that there were some executions of some members of the Hungerford family? Oh, yes. I mean, lots of executions, but let's take the scandals in order because they're jolly good scandals. The next one after Walter was Sir Edward Hungerford, who, after his first wife died, he married his steward's widow, uh, which is fine, a lady called Joan Cottle. But it turned out that she was only a widow because she had murdered her husband in order to make herself free to marry Sir Edward. And what had happened, it's all very clear in the court case, which is preserved, is that she and two of her servants had strangled her husband, the Hungerford steward, with his own neckcloth and chopped him up and burnt him in the castle furnace. Everybody knew that that had happened, but they got away with it until her husband, Sir Edward, died, and then he couldn't protect them anymore, and so... Joan and her two hitmen were hanged at Tyburn. Do we know what was the motivation for Joan to commit murder against her husband? Oh, well, so that she could marry the master. She wanted to do well for herself. So she thought, well, my husband's in the way. I'll get these two servants and myself to strangle him with his neckcloth. And uh, in order to conceal the crime, we'll chop him up and burn him in the kitchen furnace. You can still see the basis of the kitchen furnace in Farley Hungerford. Sir Edward, is he living in the same property at the same time that this woman is? Oh, yes. Yes, I mean, I think everybody, it seems that everybody knew about the murder, but they got away with it because he was such an important local person that he was able to protect them. But once he died, then the law caught up with them. OK, so with all this going on under Sir Edward Hungerford's nose, effectively, because it's his property and Joan is, is living in it, did this escape his knowledge or was it so secret that he didn't find out? Or it just seems... Um quite hard to cover up a murder really i think he preferred to turn a blind eye because it is clear from the legal records that everybody knew very well what was happening but he presumably decided he didn't really want to know 
and uh, when he died, then his protection was removed and the lady and her servants got hanged for murder. Right, but of course the law never really caught up with him either, because he was an accessory to murder, potentially, was he not? Well, we don't know whether he was an accessory or not. It's difficult to believe that he didn't know what was going on, but uh, anyway, he died so that he was out of it, whatever it was. So after all this gruesomeness had abated, there was another scandal to come, I I gather. Ah, there was, yes. A second of three. Sir Edward's son, by his first marriage, he married three times, and his first two wives apparently died naturally, and he married a third time a lady called Elizabeth Hussey. This is in Henry VIII's reign, and he married her because her family were rather important at court at the time he married her. But when they lost their influence, he decided that he wanted to get rid of her. And fortunately, we know a lot about it because Elizabeth wrote a long letter of complaint to Thomas Cromwell. That's Thomas Cromwell, Henry VIII's great minister, describing exactly what had happened to her. And she said, she said she'd been locked up in one of the castle towers these three or four years past without comfort of any creature under the custody of my lord's chaplain, who hath once or twice poisoned me. He hath promised, my lord, that he would soon rid him of me, and I am sure he intended to keep his promise. For I have none other meat or drink but such as cometh from the said priest, and brought me by my lord's fool, which meat and drink I have often feared, and still do, to taste. So she didn't dare eat the food because she thought that her husband was trying to poison her, and she also said that she was so short of drink that she drank her own urine. And she says, and sometimes of a truth, I should die for lack of sustenance, had not poor women of the country, of their charity, and knowing my lord's demeanour always to his wife, brought me to my great window in the night, such meat and drink as they had for the love of God. For money had I none to pay them, nor yet to have my lord these four years for groats, which is 16 old pence. So she'd been locked up in this tower, while her husband's chaplain and his fool attempted to poison her. She had to drink her own urine, and the only way she kept alive was because the local women, she said of their charity, had come in the night and passed her in food through her window, so she knew it wasn't poisoned. What did Elizabeth do to deserve all this? She's got three men effectively trying to do away with her. What she did was to deserve all this was no longer being of a family that was important. Her family lost their influence, so Hungerford wanted to get rid of her and perhaps marry again. I don't think she'd done anything to deserve it, at least we only know it from her point of view, but uh, it certainly seems a pretty extreme case. Certainly disproportionate to wanting to find another partner. (laughs) Apart from the murderous intentions, were there any other nobler ways that this Hungerford could have, you know, moved her on and and found another partner? Divorce, for example. There was no such thing as divorce, not really. So the only way he could get rid of her was to poison her, which he he tried to do. People are now probably wondering, okay, is there any hope for Elizabeth? Did she manage to escape this effective prison? Well, she did, because her husband came to a sticky end. When Cromwell fell, Thomas Cromwell was his patron, Lord Hungerford was accused of plotting against the king, 
and a witchcraft in the sense that he was using people to try and work out when the king would die, crystal balls and all that sort of thing, and also what was then the capital crime of homosexuality with two of his servants, which does slightly make you wonder about his other motives for getting rid of Elizabeth. So Lord Hungerford fell very suddenly and was executed a few minutes before Thomas Cromwell was, by which time he'd gone completely mad. Many judged him to be in a frenzy, says the chronicler at the time. So he came to a bad end, deserved perhaps, but she did very well because she managed to uh, escape, obviously, and married again to Sir Robert Throckmorton, and she had five daughters by him and died peacefully in her bed a lot later. So she did win out in the end. Did she also come into the ownership of the castle after Walter Hungerford III's execution? No, she didn't, because since he was executed for treason, they lost the castle again, and they lost the title of Lord Hungerford again. So once again, the castle's confiscated by the crown, so they've got to get it back again. So the crown acquired the castle. Would this still have been Henry VIII at this time? Uh, yeah, Henry VIII and Edward VI then. And so the next Hungerford, who was called Walter again, Walter IV, he had to buy the castle back from the crown, and he bought it back from Queen Mary, who was by then on the throne, Mary Tudor, and actually married one of her ladies-in-waiting, a lady called Anne Dormer. But uh, the Hungerfords were not good husbands. And once Anne Dormer's family lost their influence, he tried to get rid of her as well. He accused her of adultery, murder, and trying to poison him, uh, and wanted to divorce her. But the court wouldn't have it and said, no, no, you can't divorce her. You've got to pay her upkeep and alimony. And he said, well, I'm not going to. And he stayed in prison for three years until eventually he was forced to cough up. They weren't really a good uh, bet to, as husbands, the Hungerfords, in the 15th and 16th century. We started off with um, some, you know, real ambition and a, a chip off the old block who went on to, to go and do much bigger and better things. The first, Walter Lord Hungerford. Then things started going a little bit um, sideways and then up and down. And then really slightly, um, well, as you described, it, it went a bit mad, really. <laughs> Where did it all start to go wrong? Which, which Hungerford could be the, uh, the start of the sort of decline? Well, the whole generations of them, I suppose. The when it really started to go wrong was during the Wars of the Roses. But it was in the Tudor period, during the reign of Henry VIII, that you got one scandal after another, one unhappy marriage, one accusation of murder and poisoning, one in each generation for three generations. It's really, it's really quite uh, difficult to wrap your head around. What was it that caused all this sort of men mental instability? No, I think it was just uh, the main chance you know, marrying people and then deciding, oh, well, that, perhaps that wasn't a good idea because her family isn't as influential as it used to be. We'd better get another one. It's trying to keep their status going. Ah, OK, interesting. So the pursuit of maintenance as opposed to the pursuit of excellence. Yes, I mean, the pursuit of, of, of status and keeping the money coming in. It's no wonder. I mean, fortunately, it's all wonderfully well recorded, including some letters from Anne to Walter saying, calling him that great beast. 
So <laughs> not happy home life. And these letters, how are they accessible by history fans? Are they sort of tucked away in uh, vaults in London or something? Or The whole business about uh, Elizabeth Hussey is in uh, Letters and Papers of Henry VIII, which is printed. Uh, you can get it in most sort of academic libraries. But, I mean, I had to do a lot of work on this when I was writing the English Heritage Red Guide because you've got to be absolutely spot on if you're going to write red guides. And so I did quite a lot of work. And the other person who helped me was a long-dead rector of Farley Hungerford, Reverend John Jackson, who wrote a, a wonderful history of the castle in the Victorian period. It's out of print, I'm afraid, but it's really good. He, he, he spent his whole life writing up the history of the castle, bless him. And so that was a great help. That's amazing. So after Walter Hungerford IV, did things start to turn around for the family, despite their uh, troubles and uh, very poor decision-making, I would say? <laughs> they went quieter during the, um, until the Civil War came along and then the whole thing blew up again. Yes, so tell us about uh, what happened during the English Civil Wars, because as we've covered in previous podcasts, castles were often commandeered by royalists or parliamentarians. Did Farley Hungerford Castle get taken over by either of those groups? Yes, but they were all Hungerfords. (laughs) They were all Hungerfords, different branches of the family. Uh, At the beginning of the Civil War, the castle was in the hands of Sir Edward Hungerford III, who was the parliamentary commander in Wiltshire, although he was uh, not in the top flight of generals. He managed to abandon Salisbury, Malmesbury twice, and Devizes, and he was not uh, he was not absolutely the best thing in parliamentarian commanders. So what happened is that his own half-brother, who was also a Hungerford, John Hungerford, snatched the castle away from him for the royalists, and it was used, interestingly enough, as a place where royalist uniforms were stored. So it passed from one lot of Hungerfords to another lot of Hungerfords, from a parliamentarian Hungerford to a royalist Hungerford, and then back to a parliamentarian Hungerford when the New Model Army retook it and gave it back to Sir Edward. Okay, let's shift our focus now to another area of the castle, which is the chapel, which you mentioned at the beginning. What can you tell us about this. Uh, You've you've talked a a little bit about whereabouts it was in the uh, quadrangle. Could you just remind us whereabouts? Well, it it still is in the outer outer quadrangle, outside the inner part of the castle, and it's completely preserved. So it's totally complete, and it dates from the beginning of the castle in the 1380s. Sir Thomas Hungerford built it, and his uh, monument is there. It started off as the parish church, and then the Hungerfords built another parish church outside the castle, which you can still see. And the castle became, the chapel became the castle's private chapel. It's really worth seeing, because apart from Sir Thomas's monuments, there's some wonderful wall paintings, probably put there by the great First Lord Hungerford, Walter, and also the monuments of various Tudor and Stuart Hungerfords. But it really came to its own in the late 17th century when Sir Edward's widow, Sir Edward was the parliamentarian commander, and his widow, who was called Margaret, Lady Margaret, rebuilt the chapel as a kind of shrine for the massive tomb of Sir Edward, the parliamentarian commander, and herself. Amazing marble tomb, which is 
got a little chapel of its own and uh, it was a kind of uh, Puritan shrine. And it was also probably she that founded the famous crypt, which is a kind of vault underneath the castle, which is one of the things that people come to see a lot today. Yes, and in that crypt, we mentioned in the introduction that there are lead coffins. How do they appear? Well, the academic name for them is anthropomorphic, which means human-shaped. So they are human-shaped. In other words, they're brought, they've got a head, broad shoulders and then tapering down towards the feet and four of them have got death masks set into them now this is a a death mask would have been taken from a dying or newly dead person's face in wax and then cast in lead so they've got kind of faces stuck onto them there are four male coffins two adult women's coffins and four children and four of them have got these rather horrifying death masks put onto them. One of them is uh, Lady Margaret. The other is Sir Edward, who was the parliamentarian commander. And the others are their various nieces and descendants. They are originally in, in wooden outer coffins, but they've all gone because, as we'll see, they didn't really rest in peace for very long. Ah, right. So, yes, well, I suppose the next question is, where are the bodies if the coffins are there oh the bodies are inside the coffins (laughs) the bodies i mean it's like sealing a body into a kind of lead mold and uh, they became a a rather unpleasant tourist attraction in the victorian period because my friend the reverend uh, john jackson says that people used to go into the vault which wasn't sealed off and they would walk on the coffins and one person is said to have made a pointed stick and poked it through the lead so that he could get at the embalming fluid inside and tasting it. Jackson says, some experimentalists, more curious and less decorous than the rest, have been known actually to insert a stick and taste the embalming liquor. Why would they want to do that? <laughs> <laughs> no, don't do, don't do this at home. Apparently the embalming liquor tasted of salt and lead. I do hope it gave him a bad stomach, but uh, we don't know. So eventually they decided that this had gone too far and Jackson, the vicar, had a a lead grill put over the entrance of the crypt. You can still see the coffins, but you can't, even if you want to, and I hope you don't want to, you can't poke sticks into them. Are these coffins lying flat, as one would normally expect in, in a tomb? And are they raised? Yeah. Are, yeah, are they raised they on are. a sort of um, um, a stone plinth? They, uh, no, they're just lying on the floor because, I mean, they weren't expecting to have lots of visitors. And uh, no, these, these human-shaped coffins were a kind of fad of the 17th century, but late 17th century, but Farley Hungerford's got the biggest collection in England and the only ones you can actually see. Yes, that's really remarkable, isn't it? Um, I suppose this is um, just an example of different cultures from the past doing different things in different time periods. You know, he talks about it being a, a fashionable thing to have these lead coffins that uh, were anthropomorphic, that they looked like the people who were alive. It's very different from how we would probably do things these days. But I suppose this is also an indicator of a family who wanted to be remembered after death. Would that be accurate? Yes, it is. Uh, if you go to the, the chapel, you'll see that 
Margaret, who, who created this kind of shrine, did a whole lot of wall paintings as well. And she was really saying, look how glorious the family is, all these coats of arms. Look how grand they are. Look at all their wonderful ancestors. And look at my late husband, Sir Edward, what an important and popular chap he was, which he actually wasn't. But uh, that was what the message he was trying to get over. And despite the ghoulishness and morbidity of the dark lead, there is actually quite a bit of colour in these wall paintings, which I believe English Heritage's, English Heritage's conservators have been working to ensure they're looked after for future generations. They have, because they're very complicated, because they're not just all of one period. I mean, just to the right of the altar is a, is a wonderful knight, which belongs to the period of Walter Lord Hungerford. But in the side chapel where this uh, monument, Sir Edward, the whole lot of sort of cherubs and wall paintings of that period, which are very unusual, they really don't survive much from that period. So they are worth, well, they are worth looking at, and they certainly have been worth conserving. And it's a mercy that we've got them at all. Do they sort of read almost like a, a comic strip of the Hungerford family? Could you sort of interpret what's going on in the family's story by looking at these wall paintings? Yes, you've got to know what you're looking at in a way. You can tell a lot. And it's also some coloured monuments there, painted monuments of the late Elizabethan and early Jacobean Hungerfords. So it's a really, it's, it's a family storybook. Yes, it is. But you've got to know what you're looking at. Do they need your red guide for that then, Charles, in order to understand what they're looking at? <laughs> oh, yes. <laughs> oh, they certainly do. Yes, they do. And they also need the red guide to find out why and what happened, what happened uh, after the Hungerfords. Yes, quite. Well, we'll get on to that. But, um, but after the poking incident in the Victorian period, have, have the family's remains been largely undisturbed, apart from obviously visits by... English heritage and members of the public. They have. I mean, the, the fact it was a Hungerford who actually brought the castle to ruin, which perhaps needs a little explanation. The, we've been talking about Sir Edward, the parliamentarian commander. Well, his son, yet another Edward, Sir Edward IV, was known as a spendthrift, and he got very, very badly in debt during the reign of Charles II. He gave a large sum to the king, and of course he never got it back. And he's supposed to have spent £500, which is perhaps 500000 a day, on a periwig. And also to have gambled a whole manor on, on a game of bowls. So he was known as the spendthrift and eventually got so poor that he had to sell the castle. And he did sell the castle. And eventually it was just broken down, demolished for salvage. And bits of it you can still see stuck into the walls of houses in the village of Farley Hungerford. And some of the marble floors went off to Longleat to be garden paths. So it was he, really, who just ran out of money at last, and um, the castle became a ruin. I see. And was he the last of the Hungerfords then? He's the last, last of the castle owners, yes. Do we know what happened to the family as we go into the present day? They're still around. There's still Hungerfords around, plenty of Hungerfords around, but... They're not in possession of the castle anymore because the castle, as we know, is now looked after by English heritage who've been uh, preserving it for a very long time. 
So for people wanting to visit Farley Hungerford Castle and experience some of the uh, aspects, both great, good and bad, about this story, what are the key features that they should look out for during a visit? Well, they should certainly go to the chapel because, as we said, there are many wall paintings and monuments of the Hungerfords. And then below the chapel, there is this crypt with these coffins. Next to the chapel is what was the chapel's priest's house, and it later became a farm, so it's pretty complete. And there are exhibitions of finds from the castle there. And then in the castle itself, you can track down the furnace where Joan Cottle burnt her husband's body, and that's in the middle of the old part of the castle. And then dramatically, you can see these two big surviving towers, one of which is called the Lady Tower because it's supposed to be the one where Elizabeth Hussey was imprisoned. But it probably wasn't because it's difficult to see how people could have got, how these charitable local ladies could have got at it to bring her food without being noticed. So it's probable that it was actually one of the other towers where there was a room called, perhaps ironically, Lady Hungerford's Dining Room, perhaps a snidey reference to the fact that she didn't get anything to eat. As a final thought then, Charles, what we get to enjoy as visitors and members and tourists to Farley Hungerford Castle is, is a place which now belongs to the nation, effectively. Despite all the horrible histories associated with it, um, it is actually, on a nice day, a, a really pretty place to walk around and discover little nooks and crannies and, you know, admire religious artefacts and paintings, etc. It's a lovely place to visit. And, I mean, the Hungerfords were great fun, really. They certainly didn't lead quiet lives, and it's actually quite nice to go there and imagine uh, they're living there because they lived there in great magnificence for some time before all these disasters hit them. It is a delightful place to visit, and the chapel is just outstanding, really, on a national level. It's really good. It's all worth seeing. You've been listening to the English Heritage Podcast. Next week, we're at Stonehenge as a new festival of Neolithic ideas explores more about who built this remarkable monument. These are early farming communities. Understanding the sun was important. It, they were connecting to this. And we see this across monuments from this period of time across the British Isles. Thanks for listening. See you next time. <laughs>